I'm ready to dig into God's word. Let's pray. Again, you are a good, good father. You sent the living word, your son, to die for our sins, the likes of us. You demonstrated perfect love for us while we were sinning. And when Jesus left this earth, he made it possible for us to have the promise, the counselor, the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's how we will understand this word today. Whether somebody's coming to the church today for the first time or whether you've been going to the church for decades, you have a word for each of us today. Word of God, speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you heard of the Apostle Paul? Fair to say that most of you in this room have heard of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul had a checkered history. The kind of history that you would look at and you would say, well, God could never save this guy. God could never save him. You see, because before he was the Apostle Paul, he was the dreaded Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus with his religious training persecuting the church and then one day, he gets literally knocked off his high horse, and Jesus pokes him on the shoulder and says, uh, what are you doing? And most of you in this room have had an experience like that, where God finally knocked you off the horse, got your attention, and you know what happened for the rest of Paul's story. He married his high school sweetheart. He hit the lottery. He got a mansion on the Greek Isles. Not so much. If you're familiar with the story of Paul, you know that when he came to Jesus in 2 Corinthians 11, he writes it like this, starting at verse 23. He says, I am more in labors abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in death often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned with rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep in journeys, often in perils or waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among the false brethren, in weariness and in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And nakedness. So, you still want to be a Christian? Does anybody read through that resume of Paul's experiences after his conversion and you look at that and you say, is, is that what being a Christian is all about? And do you understand that it's in the same letter he writes something so compelling in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15. He writes something very interesting. He said, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. 
Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Thank you for my stonings. Thank you for my imprisonments. Thank you for my shipwrecks. Thank you for everything that I know. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Paul went through it. Did Paul, didn't he? Paul went through it. Have you gone through it? Have you gone through it in your life? Have you gone through those dark times and you go through those dark times and now you see a guy like Paul having gone through those dark times, having endured, having won victory, and he says, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Think about that word indescribable for a moment. Indescribable. Words fail him. All right, you think of the five senses and you think of something indescribable. You think of something that you've seen. Maybe it was a mountain. Maybe it was the Grand Canyon. And you took a picture. You put it on Facebook. You tried to describe it to someone, but your words failed you. Why? It was just so beautiful. There were just no words that were created. There were no words that were created that to describe what you saw. That's your eyes. That's your sight. What about your taste? Well, if you've ever been to Pastor John's house for chicken scarpariella, oh, I could describe it to you, the lemon, the chicken, the, but I can't describe it to you. It, it's indescribable. I'm not bragging on my own cooking. It's somebody else's recipe, okay? So I'm not bragging on my own cooking, but it's indescribable. I can't really convey to you what I taste when I eat that dish that I used to eat over at Carmine's. That's taste. Now touch. Have you ever touched something and you said, you know what, I touched this, but I, I can't really describe it. I can't really describe that thing that I'm touching. Smell, well, we won't even go there because Pastor John doesn't have a sense of smell. So you could describe it all you want, but I'll never be able to describe to you what I'm smelling because I don't have a sense of smell. But you get the point. It's indescribable hearing. It was a concert that you went to, and it was the most beautiful sound you ever heard. The chorus was like a choir of angels, and you tried to describe it, but you just couldn't because words failed you. Paul says, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Have you ever felt something that was indescribable? So amazing. So beyond words, beyond comparison, that's the thing that would carry Paul through his dark times. And what is he describing? That indescribable gift, it is heaven coming down and touching the things of earth through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the indescribable gift. Through the darkest moment of human history shines the brightest light. Through the darkest moment, you see the last few weeks, we started the series called In the Name of Love. We've talked about the torture, the death, the burial, but today it's time for the resurrection, right on time for Thanksgiving Sunday. If you were going to be thankful for anything, as we're sitting there around the table this week thinking, what am I thankful for? Start here. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift because the word says every good and perfect gift comes from above and comes down from the father of lights in whom there is no variableness nor is there shadow of turning. Start there. What are you thankful for, gang? Thanks be to God for an indescribable gift. You see, today we're going to talk about the resurrection. And as we do, the thing that struck me is that during our darkest moments, kind of like Paul, it sounds like Paul had some dark times in his life, right? And we've had them. And somebody today here is having them. We've had those dark moments, but that during our darkest moments, we can be thankful. And today we're going to give you four great reasons why we can be thankful. So let's go back to our passage. 
And again, we're in John. It's chapter 20. Verse 1. It says, Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Stop right there. Mary Magdalene, first of all. Who's Mary Magdalene? She's mentioned in all four Gospels. And if she's mentioned in all four Gospels, she must be important. She's actually mentioned more than many of the disciples that walked with Jesus. Sands, Peter, John, and James. Mary Magdalene, who was she? Well, the Gospels tell us that this woman was delivered from seven demons. Seven, seven demons, and so she's out to the grave first while it's still dark. And why is she going out there? I don't know. Why is she going out there? When you think about it, there's a stone covering that grave. It's four to six feet in diameter. It's probably one to two inches wide, and it's in a groove. So there's no way that she's going to move that stone. Why is she going out to the grave this God that saved her, this God that healed her, this God that she loved, well, think about it. She goes out to that grave. She's the first one there. My thought is, is that because there was a love there for this guy that saved her, for this Jesus that saved her, there was this tremendous, amazing love there for him. Think about it. Seven demons have been cast out. She was most likely abandoned by society, written off by society. And now here you have this woman that has been forgiven much. She's been forgiven much. She has received tremendous healing. Would you be grateful? That depth of depravity, that depth of illness, that depth of isolation, would you be grateful if, if, if you were Mary? See, it's often said that, that the more forgiven we are, the more things that we have to be forgiven from, the, the more we appreciate what Jesus did for us. You can't really appreciate being pain-free unless you've been in pain. Is that fair? Then you have a deeper appreciation for, for, for being well. Guys, have you ever had a kidney stone? Have you ever had a kidney stone? you've had a kidney stone, they say that it is the equivalent for the, as a, as a female gives birth, they say that it's the equivalent. I don't know because I've never given birth. But I have had a kidney stone, and I know that when I was sitting there in West Boca in the ER, I was praying. I was like, God, just let me pass out or something. Let me just pass out, please. And then the relief came. And then the relief came. If you've ever struggled to catch your breath and then, oh, then you were given oxygen or then you were able to catch your breath or you're in South Florida, you've ever been out in the heat and then you walk into the air, it's kind of like, oh, you have a deeper appreciation for the hair, for, for the air. With Mary, she had been forgiven much. She had been healed. Her life was a living hell. Seven demons living inside of her. Life was a living hell. This woman was full of love. She was full of gratitude for the Savior and yet she was crushed. She was crushed. 
this God that delivered her, this God that healed her, she just watched him take his last breath on the cross a few days ago, and yet she still presses forward. How many of you have had those moments in your life where you sat there and, and there was just so much heartbreak and so much heartache and it was so devastating that you didn't feel like you could take one more step, yet there was something that kept pushing you forward to take one more step? What was that? It's the first thing that we're going to see today and it's the first reason that we can be thankful for what can make a woman who feels crushed press on, what can make a man that feels crushed press on. It's the first thing that we see today. It's the power of love. The power of love. That great philosopher, Huey Lewis, said it like this. The power of love is a curious thing. Makes a one man weep. Makes another man sing. There's no greater power that has ever been written about than the power of love. Yes? When you look at the fairy tales, when you look at poetry, when you look at songs, switch for love alone is worth the fight. All right, the power of love is the thing that can bring us forward when sometimes you just feel like quitting, feel like throwing in the towel. Can you imagine that possibly Mary felt that way? I mean, what happens when the one that saved you, he takes his last breath, where does that leave you now? And yet she's the first one at the tomb. She's recorded because she is the first one there, she's recorded, listen, gang, as being the first one to see that the tomb is empty because of her faithfulness. How important are women in Scripture? Oh, incredibly. Incredibly important is the role of the woman in Scripture. Because not only is Mary going to see first that the tomb is open, but there's going to be something else that we're going to see at the end of our study that I pray just blows us all away when we consider the magnitude of who Jesus had revealed himself to, these truths to. Mary loved him, and there was no doubt about that, and it was that love that was pushing her through. It's that love that was pushing her through. She gets there, the soldiers aren't there. She gets there, nothing is what she expected, nothing is what she thought it was going to be. But have you ever been lifted up by the power of love? Have you been lifted up by it? Many years ago, there was an attempt, I say an attempt, to make a fifth Rocky movie. And in this movie, you have Rocky. He loses everything in the movie, okay? He's lost everything. He's got to go back to the streets of Philly. And when he goes back to the streets of Philly, well, he doesn't have anything left. He's got to go back to the old apartment, and all hope seems to be gone for the family. And then he runs into a young man named Tommy Gunn. All right, he runs into Tommy Gunn, and Tommy Gunn, what he sees, he looks, at him, he looks at Tommy Gunn, and he sees himself when he was younger. And so he starts forsaking his family, pouring into Tommy Gunn, training Tommy Gunn. He's going to make Tommy Gunn the next champion. He's living vicariously through Tommy Gunn. And as Tommy attains more success, something interesting happens. He begins to forsake Rocky. Not only that, but he's told, he is told by the promoter that unless he challenges Rocky and unless he calls him out, unless he calls him out, he's never going to get out of Rocky's shadow. So Tommy Gunn goes to call him out in public one night. He says, Rocky Balboa, you come out here. I want to fight you. So he calls Rocky out and Rocky comes outside and Rocky just gets the snot kicked out of him. If you remember the scene, Rocky is getting a beating. 
He's getting an epic. My son and I call this an epic beating, a savage beating, a mega beating. He's getting this beating, and finally he's knocked down. And in true Rocky fashion, what happens is this. He starts having the flashbacks. He's having all the flashbacks of his training, of all his bad experiences. And then his trainer, Mickey, who had always trained him and always encouraged him, he said, come on, get up. You, I haven't heard no bell yet. I haven't heard no bell yet. Get up. And then he says, why, why to get up? Because you're embarrassing me? No. Why should you get up? Because you're embarrassing yourself? No. Should you get up to save face? No. Get up because Mickey loves you. He says, you get up because Mickey loves you, and then you know what happens, right? Then you hear the music. You can hear it going on. And then Rocky gets up, and, the, and then you have two more Rocky movies. That's what happens at the end, okay? <laughs> but it's the power of love. Now, we have a greater power than that at our disposal. The Bible tells us that God is love. And so what drives us through, through the heartbreak of this world, I can't imagine being that pastor last week. His church shot up two weeks ago, and last week he gets up and he delivers a message. What does that? That's the power of love. It's the same power that Mary didn't understand. Mary didn't understand, but she goes forward anyway. I don't understand. I just I watched him take his last breath. Everything I know about death, I've just seen happen on that cross, but I'm going out to that tomb anyway. And love pushes her through. Let's see what she finds. It says, the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Verse 2, it says, then she ran and she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. And so they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Check it out, gang. I love reading John. John is the disciple that writes about God's love. He wants you to know two things in his writing. One, that God is love, and two, that Jesus is God. And the thing that John understands so deeply that penetrates his heart, the thing that John gets is that Jesus loved him. He gets that, that Jesus loved him. John understands that, and so he refers to himself five times in this gospel. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So he kind of takes himself out of the picture starting at Passion Week. Starting in John 13, he starts referring to himself at that point as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But for the other characters of Scripture, well, he kind of throws everybody under the bus at the end. Everybody who the other writers semi-protect, John kind of throws under the bus. And even here, all right, he's writing about Peter. And he's like, yeah, we both uh, ran to the tomb. Now, Peter was first in everything, right? First to open his mouth, first to step off the boat and walk onto the water, first to say, hey, I believe you're the Messiah, but John wants you to know one thing here, and I don't know why he put it there. He wants you to know that he outran him. Oh, yeah, I, I, uh, we were on the way to the tomb and uh, smoked him. Smoked him. Yeah, I mean, I was like, you know, Peter is a little older. He's a little bit older. He's like an you know, older fisherman, but I was kind of young. And man, on the way over there, it's like he was in the dust, man. I don't know why John puts that there, but you can see the beauty and the honesty of the gospel writers, man, and how it's inspired by God, yet it's also uniquely human. That John says, yeah, I, I beat him. It's kind of cool. You know, it's a good experience. You know, it's like I was just in a little bit of better shape than Peter was. He ran there. He ran there. Now, John does this. 
right? The other gospel writers say that when the lady breaks the uh, anoint and anoints Jesus' feet, that the disciples complain. No, no, it wasn't the disciples. It was Judas that complained. Not only did he complain about it, but he'd been stealing for the last few years. He'd been stealing from the money box. So John doesn't spare anyone. The soldier, the, 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 uh, the disciple that cuts off the ear of Malchus, John wants you to know it was Peter. All right, so here you have John. And John says, listen, we got there. We ran, smoked them, got to the tomb. I got there first. And I would ask you this. What is it that you think that when a man or a woman gets knocked down, well, we, we talked about the power of love that could keep them going. But when you're down, what could make you sprint? What could make you run when you feel like you're knocked down? What can give you that kind of power? The power of hope. The power of hope. They didn't understand what had happened fully. But what we have is the power of hope. And that's what drives them to the grave. So they get there, and it says in verse five, Peter came to the to, uh, verse four. Peter came to the tomb first, and he stooped down, and looking in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. Yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, <laughs> following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Okay, those linen cloths, do you know what it would take to get those linen cloths off of a body? They would have had to have been ripped. They would have had to have been shredded, but they were laying there as if folded, the Bible tells us. They were laying there as if folded, as if the body had almost evaporated and the clothes were just left behind. And that's what they see. They see the head covering right here. They see the rest of it right over here, they see. And John and Peter, who were always together, they witnessed this scene together. And what you see is hope. There's hope. There's hope in the way that they run. Is there hope in the way that you're running right now? Are you running a race? And do you have the strength to conjure up that hope that is only possible when you know that it's not over until Jesus says that it is? That's when we have hope. Hope is powerful. There was an experiment that had been done recently. Well, not so recently. It was in the 1950s, and it was actually kind of a gruesome experiment. All right? The experiment was run by Carl Richter, he first took a dozen domesticated rats, put them into jars half filled with water, and watched them drown. I hope the ASPCA isn't listening to this. The idea was to measure the amount of time they swam before they gave up and went underwater. The first rat, Richter noted, swam around excitedly on the surface for a very short time, then dove to the bottom where it began to swim around, nosing its way all along the glass wall. It died two minutes later. Two more of the 12 domesticated rats died in much the same way. 
But interestingly, the nine remaining rats did not succumb nearly so readily. They swam for days before they eventually gave up and died. Now came the wild rats, renowned from their swimming ability. The ones Richter had used had recently trapped and were fierce and aggressive. One by one, he dropped them in the water, and all but one, they surprised him. Within minutes of entering the water, within minutes, all 34 died. What killed these rats, he wondered. Why do all the fierce, aggressive wild rats die promptly on immersion and only a small number of the similarly treated tame domesticated rats? The answer is the word hope. The situation of the rats scarcely seems one demanding fight or flight. When the rats were put in the water, what had happened was this. He conducted the experiment and initially what he did was he, they only survived minutes and there, were, there was another time that he did the experiment where he had fished out a couple of them. He'd fished out a couple of the rats. And so now when they tried the experiment later, those same rats that had been fished out, those rats, because they had experienced salvation, they'd, they'd experienced being saved, well, they lasted 72 hours. They lasted 72 hours versus a few minutes. That's the power of hope. Now, I don't know if you all would go there with me, but in a lot of ways, you represent hope to the folks that you're around. You that know Jesus, you that have experienced Jesus, you represent that hope that a life can be changed. And when somebody sees hope, that's a very powerful thing. It can make guys that are feeling like they're kind of crushed, it can make them get up and run to see what's going on. And so they run to the grave. And so you have the power of hope. It was many years ago that a movie called Saving Mr. Banks came out starring Emma Thompson and Tom Hanks. And it was the story of Pamela Travers, the author of Mary Poppins. Due to the success of her children's book, Walt Disney and his team tried to convince her to turn the book in her char into characters for her film. Travers was reluctant throughout the entire creative process and eventually shut down emotionally and returns to London, unable to let the film continue. Travers' characters are not simply characters to her, they're like family. In fact, we learn through the flashbacks that Mr. Banks is modeled somewhat after her very own flawed father, and Mary is modeled after her aunt. In a powerful scene at the end of the movie, Walt Disney, played by Tom Hanks, comes to Travers' house in England to talk with her about the film. And after sharing about his own painful childhood, Disney delivers this profound monologue to Travers, he says, give Mary Poppins to me, Miss Tavers. Trust me with your precious Mary Poppins. I won't disappoint you. I swear that every time a person goes into a movie house, they will see George Banks being saved. They will love him and his kids. They will weep for his cares and wring their hands when he loses his job. And when he flies that kite, oh, they will rejoice and they will sing. Disney continued to say, in every movie house all over the world, in the eyes and the hearts of my kids, George Banks will be honored. Maybe not in life, but in imagination, because that's what we storytellers do. We restore order with imagination. We instill hope again and again and again. Trust me, Miss Travers, let me prove it to you. I give you my word. Listen, church. These men had been walking with Jesus for three years. They had left their nets behind. They had given up everything. What, the, sto the stones rolled away? 
stones rolled away. There's, there, there's something that's happening there. Maybe hope isn't dead. Hope is alive. And they run. And here's what happens. It's like when you have hope, hope replicates. When somebody sees the hope that's in you, that replicates and that inspires over and over and over again. You see, that's the way that God creates things, right? That's the way he creates everything. All right, he creates everything with a seed. And what is a seed? It's an encapsulated DNA, right? If a seed is encapsulated DNA, do you have the DNA of hope that is given by the gospel that when you go out, all you're doing is spreading and all you're doing is sharing and all you're doing is growing the kingdom of God because you have hope. And that's the hope that can make men run when they feel like crawling up a ball and they feel like giving up and they feel like dying. But here's the thing for us, church. Your hope always has to be found in a person. Hope is found for the Christian in a person. Our hope is found in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not in a situation. It's not in a any other person but Jesus. If we put our hope anywhere else other than Jesus, what we'll find is that we will be let down. Have there been situations in your life that let you down lately? Have there been people in your life that have let you down lately? When we put our hope in the right place, our hope is a person, and that gives us the power to run when we feel like crumbling and crawling up in a ball and dying. So what do they see when they get to the tomb? Let's, let's check this out. It says here in verse 5, and he stooped, and Peter, so Peter came into the tomb first, and he stooped down, looking in, saw the linen cloth lying there. I'm sorry, that's John. Yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, again, John says it, I got there first. He came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and he believed. He saw and he believed. The experience with God led him to the tomb, and when he got there, what he saw and what he didn't see that's why he believed, and that's the power of faith. So we saw the power of love with Mary that keeps her going. We see the power of hope that gets them running, and now we see that w the power of faith. They believed. What did they believe? What did they believe when they, when they saw this? Did they believe, okay, well, Jesus Christ died for my sins? No, they didn't understand that part of it yet. But what they did understand was that way back in the book of John, it was told to them when Jesus said, well, listen, I know that that temple took 46 years to build, but tear it down, and it's going to be rebuilt in three days. He was talking about his body. He was talking about himself. He was talking about his resurrection. What did they believe? They believed he was alive. And you can believe he was alive, and you can believe he saved you without necessarily understanding every part of it. When, some, when we do an altar call at the church and somebody comes up to receive Jesus, in that moment, they don't automatically understand the Trinity. They don't get how God, in that moment, they don't, all of a sudden they're given perfect understanding as to how God created all things out of nothing. When you walked up to receive Christ as your Savior, did you still have some questions? And as you're growing in Jesus, do you still have some questions? 
But do we understand what the Bible says is that, is that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways? And so we come and we say, okay, I'm not going to understand everything about God. There are going to be some things because he's so great and he's so big and he's so massive that I'm going to have trouble wrapping my little finite mind around. And that's the truth. There's so many times I look at a scripture and I go, I have no idea what you meant there, God. What are you talking about? And yet because they went, because they actually got up and they went, they saw something and it said they had faith and they believed. They had faith and they believed and their hearts were encouraged. Do you want encouragement from the Spirit of God? Do you want to grow in your faith? If you want to grow in your faith and you want to grow in your encouragement, then you have to seek the things of the Spirit. If you want encouragement from the Spirit, you have to engage the things of the Spirit. So in other words, you go home from work and you've had a bad day and you're feeling disgusted and you're feeling depressed and you're feeling discouraged. And because you're feeling discouraged, because of the experience, your faith feels like this. So what do you have to do? You have to engage the things of the Spirit. You have to engage and expose yourself to the things of the Spirit, and those are the things that's going to encourage you. In other words, when I have a bad day at work, I've had those moments where I, where I flip on the TV, and now I'm looking at a basketball game. Oh, good, the Golden State Warriors are praying, playing. <laughs> the Golden State Warriors are playing. Oh, good, Steph Curry just hit a three-pointer. Now I'm feeling discouraged. Now I'm encouraged because my team is winning. All right, that's encouraging. But that's not encouraging my spirit. Maybe sometimes you're flipping around and you're feeling discouraged and you're not engaging the things of the spirit and you're, you're looking at the TV and, and you know, you, you put on a TV show. I don't know. Maybe it's, it's like scandal. <laughs> and I don't know if that's encouraging your spirit except for the fact that you're looking and you say, well, those, that's kind of cool. You know, their, their lives are more screwed up than mine is. <laughs> that's awesome. I love that. And so you're watching that and you're saying, okay. If you want to encourage yourself in the Spirit, you have to engage the things of the Spirit. There are those moments that you're not going to feel like picking up your Bible. Those are the times you need to be in, your, in the Word. Those are those times that you don't feel like praying. How many of you have had those moments where it's like, you know what, I know I should be praying right now, but I just don't feel like it. And I don't want anybody to tell me to. So I'm not going to call them up. I'm not going to reach for the phone. I don't want anybody to tell me that I should be praying. I know I should be praying, but I don't feel like praying. But those are the times that we need to pray. If you want encouragement from the things of the Spirit of the Lord, we need to engage and expose ourselves to the things of the Lord. Because they went. They saw. They saw that the linens were on the floor. They saw that, 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 it was, that the tomb was empty. They saw something there, and that was the power of faith, and it said they left believing. But if you want that faith to increase, you have to look for the things of God. You have to be intentional. Let me ask you something. Do you think that the enemy's intentional about the way he discourages you? You bet. You bet. He's very intentional. Folks, let me tell you when it says that the enemy has probably has a file on every one of us, and he knows exactly what it would take to discourage your heart specifically. And if he's that specifically with you, then if he's that specific with you, then how specific are you in this battle? However they were feeling that day, 
Once they got the news from Mary, they got up, they ran, and because they ran, and because they went into this tomb, they saw something, and what they saw, they believed. Have you had those moments where you just, you know, you sat there and you were discouraged and you just opened up the word and you found, oh, this verse kind of pertains to my life today. Can I tell you what's been cool the last couple of weeks as I've been preparing these messages? It's like last week we were talking about the crucifixion and whatnot and the verse of the day, the version verse of the day, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I read that. That was Galatians 2.20. That was last Saturday. Then yesterday, as I was preparing this message, I saw 2 Corinthians 9.15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And I was like, wow, this is cool. This is cool. This is an encouragement. This is some kind of an affirmation. But let me ask you something. How are you going to get affirmed? How are you going to get encouraged by the promises of God unless you're opening up the word of God and looking at those promises and engaging and just sitting with them and saying, listen, I'm feeling discouraged. I'm struggling right now, and I need a word from you. I need help from you. I need to increase my faith. If that describes you, then these are the things that we need to do. The disciples went and they walked away believing, wouldn't that be cool? I was struggling, but then I opened up the word. I listened to a song. I turned on Way FM or K-Love, or I put in my Chris Tomlin CD. I put in one of these CDs, and all of a sudden my heart was encouraged because that's how God does it. At just the right time, I got a call or a text from a brother in Christ. And he said he was praying for me. I, I don't know how he, know, how, how he knew I needed prayer, but, but I did. And that's how the thing works. That's the power of faith. To finish up our passage, we continue. So the disciples, verse 10... Let's go back to verse 8. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and they saw and believed, for as yet they did not know the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. Stop right there. This is such a guy thing. Okay? The disciples, the two guys, they saw, they believed. They're out of there. They leave Mary sitting there just crying. All right, so Mary's sitting there weeping. And, and I say that this is a guy thing. Guys, don't get insulted. Or guys, go ahead, get insulted. <laughs> we, we baptized somebody a few months ago. And when we baptized this person, they had a, a little struggle with their, with their leg. And um, so we went out to the ocean, and the surf was kind of rough. And after we baptized her, well, there's a picture that they took, and it's of me coming out of the water with a big smile on my face. Well, she's sitting there in the surf on her back <laughs> like this, okay? She's sitting there in the surf. Now, I don't think she was any, in any immediate danger, but it was such a guy thing because you look at the picture and you go, wow, <laughs> okay, Pastor, I'm just thrilled that she got baptized, I was just happy that she got baptized, and she's sitting there, and so a couple of the other guys go over, and they start lifting her out of the water. Well, then I go, and I help her get out of the water. She wasn't going to drown, I promise. All right, but it's just to illustrate that sometimes, guys, we're, we're, we're kind of a little insensitive. Is there any man in this room that's ever been accused of being insensitive, or am I the only one? All right, 
All right. So if you've ever been <laughs> accused of being insensitive, all right, you've got the guys, they leave. Mary's sitting there. She's crushed. She's confused. And when I read this yesterday, I said, wow, this woman is broken. Have you been broken? And you could say, well, I don't know that I've been, I've lost a lot, Pastor. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, have you been broken? Losing a lot doesn't make you broken any more than gaining a lot makes you rich. Just because you lost a lot, broken means broken in spirit. And do you see that in Mary? I don't know that we necessarily saw that in Peter and John, but do you you see that in Mary? Can you see that with me? That there's a brokenness there? And she's weeping, and she's, she's broken, and she's crushed, and she's crying. Well, then let me remind you what the Bible says in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Check this out what happens to the mourning Mary. She's weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Stop. You you take a look at that and you say, any other place in Scripture for the most part, when somebody sees an angel, they fall dead as if trembling when they see an angel. But Mary is so overwhelmed by her grief. She's so overwhelmed by this grief, it doesn't even register. They ask her a question and she answers right off the bat. Because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. My Lord, my Lord, look at the pronoun. It's my Lord. This was my God. And what does she walk into the tomb seeing? Well, at one end, on one bench, she sees an angel. And at the other side of the bench, she sees an angel. And what you have here, folks, how many of you have ever heard of the Ark of the Covenant with the two angels at the other side of the mercy seat sitting on this bench? What you have is a picture. And it doesn't even register to Mary, but it registers to us now. But Mary is just seeking Jesus, and she can't find him, and she's lost, and she's confused. And having these two angels there, it doesn't even even register to her. So so when she says this, now when they had, she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around. She turned around on angels. Now, if you were looking at angels, if an angel appeared to you, what would it look like? You'd be like, it's an angel. Would your gaze be fixed upon them? Would you want to leave? Dude, this is 2017. Here's what we would be doing. All right, these are the two angels right here. Selfie. All right, you'd be taking a selfie. Right? You'd be taking pictures. You'd be recording this live for Facebook. Right? You'd be looking at Facebook. You would be recording it. You'd be taking a selfie. It doesn't even register. She turns her back. Something supernatural. She just turns her back. She turns her back. Now check this out. Remember, blessed are those who mourn. 
for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She supposed him to be the gardener and said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, you tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Do you remember what he said back in the book of John? Remember what he said back in the book of John chapter 10? My sheep will hear my voice. And it says he will call his sheep by name. As soon as he says Mary, she knows exactly who it is. She knows exactly who it is. And the one that was most broken had the greatest revelation of God's faithfulness. It's God's faithfulness that we count on, gang. That's what draws us through the tough times. It's the power of love that we saw. It's the power of hope that we see. It's the power of faith and believing. But then there's that power of God's faithfulness. It's not my faithfulness. It's God's faithfulness to reveal himself to the broken. And you might come here today and you would say, well, Pastor, I want to see God, but I haven't seen God. I want to see Him. And I would just ask, are you broken yet? Have you gone far enough yet? Has the situation become so desperate that you finally said, I've had enough? Because don't we know that it's in that moment that He sweeps in and reveals Himself at the moment that it seems that there's no more hope. There's nothing left. Can you imagine Joseph's life 15 years from the time he had his dream until the, point, until the point where his brothers were finally kneeling before him? Can you imagine what was on his mind in that moment? Like, wow, God did it. God did it. Or after that 10th plague was sent, when Moses was leading the children of Israel out, and with the bittersweet, with all the firstborn Children of the Egyptians said Moses is walking them. Can you imagine that feeling in Moses' heart as he's walking forward and going, this is crazy. I mean, I know God said that he was going to do this, but I didn't think he would do it. I mean, have you had that experience in your life where, you know, I want God to do this, and when he finally does it, you're sitting there saying, I can't believe he did it, but I hoped that he would do it, and he did it. That's God's faithfulness. And that can bring us through anything. This book is full of story upon story upon David, upon Daniel and Joseph and the children of Israel and Peter and Paul and, and so many. And what you see through all of their stories, wonderful testimonies as to God's faithfulness. Pastor Chuck, who started the Calvary movement so many years ago in the 1960s, they were meeting in tents. The hippies. And he would look at them and he'd say, and look at what God did with a, a group of hippies. And Pastor Chuck would always sit and he would say, look at what God did with this. Look at his faithfulness. 
the thing that seems so unlikely because that's what the whole faith is based on. It's the stone that the builders rejected that became the chief cornerstone. So if you've been rejected, good for you. Because if you've been rejected and you're in God's house and you're hearing God's word, then God has a plan. And it's his love and it's his hope and it's his faith and it's his faithfulness that carries us through. Verse 17, it says, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father and to my God and to your God. And now Jesus is using the pronouns. Now he turns it right around. She said, they've taken my, they've taken my Lord, my Lord. And Jesus turns it around now and he says, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet descended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am descending to my father and your father. He's not just my father, he's your father. Oh, believe me, because of what you've seen today, he's a good, good father. He's a good, good father. That's who he is. And now you've seen it. You've seen his faithfulness. And Mary Magdalene, the one to whom seven demons had been cast out was just given the most important revelation perhaps of all time. She loved him and she was broken. Do you want to see God? Bless her to the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Never has such a blessing come from picking up something that was empty. And that's what we find in the empty tomb that day. I want to close you with a little illustration that I found that I thought was applicable to today's message. Little Philip was born with Down syndrome. He attended a third grade Sunday school class with several eight-year-old boys and girls. Typical of that age, the children did not readily accept Philip with his differences according to an article in Leadership Magazine, but because of a creative teacher, they began to care about Philip and accept him as part of the group, though not fully. The Sunday after Easter, the teacher brought legs pantyhose containers. Have you guys ever seen those, the, legs, the old legs pantyhose containers? I don't think they still make them like this. Um, the old legs pantyhose containers, the kind that look like large eggs, each receiving one, the children were told to go outside on that lovely spring day Find some symbol for new life and put it in the egg-like container. Back in the classroom, they would share their new life symbols, opening the containers one by one in surprise fashion. After running about the church property in wild confusion, the students returned to the classroom and placed the containers on the table. Surrounded by the children, the teacher began to open them one by one, and after each one, well, you'd see a flower symbolizing new life a butterfly or a leaf and with each revelation the class would go ooh ah then one was opened revealing nothing inside the children exclaimed that's stupid that's not fair somebody didn't do their assignment philip spoke up and he said that's mine philip you don't ever get things right the student retorted there's nothing there I did so do it, Philip insisted. I did do it. It's empty. And the tomb was empty. And silence followed. From then on, Philip became a full member of the class. 
He died not long afterward from an infection most normal children would have shrugged off. At the funeral, this class of eight-year-olds marched up to the altar, not with flowers, but with their Sunday school teacher, each to lay on it an empty pantyhose leg. Have you walked in here today in a dark situation? Maybe it's, maybe it's not the most depressing situation in the world, but it's a struggle of faith. And you walked into this place today and you're like, I don't really even want to be there. There are a lot of things I could be doing today in church is just not one of them. But as you come into this place today, my hope is that what you've heard is the heart of a God that loves you. And it's a book that is full of accounts of men and women just like you and me going through our struggles. As we first saw Mary, not even probably feeling like it, but going out to that tomb drawn there by love and then Peter and John running to the tomb. Seeing the grave clothes, <laughs> nobody in them. Mary getting to see Jesus and getting the most important message of all time. It's all about love and hope and faith. But the Bible says that the greatest of these is love. And that's the thing that can change a situation, turn a situation around, change a heart. So if you came here this morning and you're battling, well then what the Word of God tells us is that this event took place this event took place so that we could again have that relationship with God. We could have love and hope and faith. We could have all these things restored. So if you're battling today and you came into this place and you're like, you know what, Pastor, I walked in today. I'm not sure about the whole God thing. If today were to be my last day on earth, no, I, if there's a heaven, I don't know that I would go. I hope I would, but I don't know. That's not God's desire. That's not why. He didn't send his son to die on a cross so that we could have an if-maybe. He sent his son to die on the cross so that we could know that we know that we know that if today was our last day on this planet, that we would know that we would be together with him in a place where there would be no more tears or suffering. So if you hear this message today and you say, you know what, that's, that, that's the kind of love, that's the kind of hope, that's the kind of life that I want. That's what I need. I'm struggling and I need hope. And there's no better place to find it at the cross of Christ. Because if you take a look at that cross, there's nobody on the cross either. The cross is empty and there's no one in the tomb. And that means new life for you and me. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed. Behold, he's made all things new.